Jeff asked me to uh, share with you for a few weeks in the book of Ruth. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Ruth, the first chapter. It's the eighth book of the Bible. If you, get, if you see Samuel or Kings, you've gone too far. Back up just a little bit. It's really small, so it's kind of hard to find. Ruth chapter 1. This is God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the names of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we're a part of something so much bigger than ourselves that even on our best day, we have very, a very difficult time grasping just how great and wonderful and marvelous your story is. I pray this morning that you would show us ourselves, show us our sin, show us our Savior, Lord. 
May this book of Ruth come alive to us for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a project on CBS years ago. I don't know if you ever saw it. It started in 1998. It ran through 2004. It was called Everybody Has a Story. I don't know if any of you ever saw that. What they did, every two weeks, someone threw a dart at a map of America, and then Steve Hartman, the CBS News correspondent, went wherever the dart stuck and took out a local phone book book and picked a name at random out of the phone book, and then he did a story on someone in that house, assuming they were willing. It didn't matter who they were or what they had to say. This was strictly first come, first served, and no one was eliminated for any reason, and every story got on the air, and the result was a unique and wildly unpredictable television show. It was really interesting. I saw a few of them. After meeting a family and convincing them that he really wasn't a salesman, he wasn't selling anything, Steve and his cameraman, Les Rose, usually spent about two days with the subject. They spent the first day trying to figure out what the person's story was, and then the second day was mostly shooting and interviewing. And before leaving that house, the subject of that story took a dart, threw it back over his shoulder backwards onto a map, and wherever it landed, that's where they went the next week for the story. And when this was all said and done, they had profiled over about 100 people from Maine to Miami, from the coast of Oregon to the Arizona desert. His youngest subject was a five-year-old boy from Tennessee who liked to float balloons to his grandma in heaven. And his oldest was an 87-year-old woman from Louisiana who still did her son's laundry. (laughs) Hartman recalls that, he says, when I was doing it, it, when I started doing it, it was more or less a joke. He said, I never dreamed you could actually find good stories like that. It turns out I couldn't have been more wrong. I now believe the white pages for you young people. We used to have phone books. You didn't have a context list. There was a phone book. The white pages are chock full of amazing untold stories. In this room, this room is chock full of amazing stories. I've enjoyed hearing a few of those, and hopefully over, over time, as we're here longer, we'll get to hear more of your stories. But we all have a story, and they're usually pretty interesting. Everybody has a story. And we, you and I spend a lot of energy trying to make our story come out right. But I want to tell you this morning, we're going to look in the book of Ruth, that, that God is writing a story too. And he's working out his eternal plan. And to the degree that we let our story be a part of his story, we're going to find joy. But if we insist on writing our own story, we will end up bitter and depressed, even as Christians. When I look this morning at Naomi, just three basic parts about this first chapter. First, Naomi's catastrophe, and then Naomi's response to her catastrophe. And then the fact that Naomi was a part of a much bigger story than her own. Now, start in chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, it gives us the setting for the story. In the days when the judges ruled. Okay? This is part of a bigger story, but its setting is in the context of the days when the judges ruled. You know that. Some of you know that period in history. God, at the beginning when Adam and Eve had sinned, immediately prophesied that Eve's seed would crush the serpent's head looking forward to the day when Christ would come and shedding his own blood would defeat the power of evil and destroy Satan. And all through the Old Testament, there's that story that's running along. A little later, God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. 
And then when he was a really old guy and his wife couldn't have any kids, God gave him a son Isaac, which means laughter. And then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, he was deceitful and he went off and did a bunch of things. And later on, he wrestled with God. God changed his name to Israel. And then he had 12 sons. And one of those sons was so obnoxious that the other 11 sons, well, 10 of, 10 of the other sons, took him and sold him as a slave into Egypt. And he goes down into Egypt. And then the whole family eventually ends up in Egypt because even though they meant it for evil... Joseph says at the end of his life, God intended it for good for saving lives. And so the whole family, Abraham's seed ended up down in Egypt. They ended up becoming slaves there for 400 years, which God had already told Abraham was going to happen years before. Then he sends Moses and he brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. But because of their unbelief, that whole generation died in the desert. And 40 years after that, then he chooses Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua goes in and we got the, you know, the battle of Jericho and we got the sun standing still and all those great historical events that showed the power of God in bringing his people into the promised land. And then, when, then the time of Judges comes. And it's probably one of the saddest times in Israeli history. And if you look in Judges chapter 1, you can turn there if you want, chapter 2, excuse me. I'm just going to read you a section to lay out the groundwork, the historical context for the story that we're going to talk about this morning. Chapter, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. All that generation, that is Joshua's generation, that generation of faith that saw the miracles that God did as they took over the promised land. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. That means they died. And there arose another generation after them who didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Then down in verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They didn't drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. You read through the book of Judges. Just story after story. It's like, what are you thinking? And then the book is summed up at the end of the book, which is right there on the page before we get to Ruth. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Millennia ago, thousands and thousands of years ago, people were living the same way people live today. Everybody knows what's right in their own eyes. Everybody's trying to write their happily ever after story for themselves. But God, throughout all of this, was right, working out his plan of redemption. He was writing his story of redemption. And we find ourselves now smack dab in this period of time with all this idolatry and disobedience and deliverance and this cycle of idolatry and then distress and then crying out to God and God showing pity on them and sending a judge to them and then they're delivered and then 
as soon as the judge dies, they're back in the old pattern. The people of Israel were doing whatever they thought was right, and everybody was writing their own story. And it's in this context that we come to chapter 1 of Ruth. It was in this time, in the day when the judges ruled. And it's a time of distress right now. There was a famine in the land of Israel, so what happens? In verses 1 and 2, we see that Elimelech takes his family to Moab, which was a, a, a nation on the east, to the east of Israel, on the other side of the Jordan. Verse 3, Elimelech dies. Verse 4, we see that his two sons marry Moabite women. And then in verse 5, after 10 years, the sons die. And in chapter 1, verse 6, we have this summary of Naomi's catastrophe. Excuse me, verse 5. My notes are wrong. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Nowadays, that would be sad enough. But you have to realize, in that time, there was no life insurance. There were no pensions. There was no Social Security. A woman didn't go out and get a job on her own. There were no food stamps. There were no food banks. There was nothing. And here's this woman who goes out rich. She has a husband and two sons, so she's got three means of being supported by these three men who will work and provide for her. She'd take care of the home, but they would go out and take care of her and protect her. And now she's got nothing. One, comment, one di- uh, dic- Bible dictionary says, the loss of a husband in ancient Israel was normally a social and economic tragedy. The death of a husband usually meant a type of cultural death as well. And although the term widow referred to a woman whose husband had died, Because of the social context, the word quickly acquired the connotation of a person living a marginal existence in extreme poverty. Her crisis was aggravated if she had no able-bodied children to help her work the land of her dead spouse. Since she was in an extremely vulnerable economic position, she became the prime target of exploitation. This was Naomi. I'm emphasizing this because I want you to realize she really was suffering. This was a terrible situation. It's no wonder then in verses 8 through 13 we read what we read, what she says to her two daughters-in-law who start off with her going back to Israel. And what does she say in verse 8? Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's saying, go back. Go find somebody to take care of you. You've been good to me. We had a good time together, but I don't have anything to offer. You go back, each of you, in the house of your husband. Now, whatever you think about men and women and roles and all that, we're not going to deal with that this morning. But the point is, at that time in history, you didn't have a husband. You didn't have anything. And you had no other recourse. So in verse 11, she again, after they say, no, we're going to go with you, we're going to, we're going to go with you, she says to them again in verse 11, turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? What possible reason would you have to go back with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may, come, may become your husbands? It wasn't just the idea that, about children, it was the idea, do I have anyone that I could give birth to that could take care of you? I don't have anything to offer you. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? You're going to wait 20 years 
for a breadwinner. You're going to spend 20 years suffering and being destitute until if I even could have a kid, he would grow up and take care of you. It's ridiculous. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Other translations, I think, do a better job with this verse and translate it. It is more bitter for me than for you that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You can still have kids. You still got something to offer a man so he would marry you and take care of you and protect you. I got nothing. I'm going back to Israel without any possible hope for my future. No means of support. No way of producing a child. Life as Naomi knew it was over. I'm laying the context out for you because I want you to realize just how bad the situation was for her. Now I'm going to skip over verses 14 to 18 because next week we're going to look at Ruth's part of the story. And we're going to look at that next week. Basically, Orpah, one daughter-in-law, she does the logical things. The logical things. She says, Naomi, you're right. It makes more sense for me to go back. And so she goes back. Ruth, however, clings to Naomi, signs up for a life of destitution because of her love for for Naomi. But we'll look at that next week. So that's Naomi's catastrophe. Basically, you think you got it bad? Look at how she had it. Verses 19 to 21 shows us how Naomi responds. And in this this passage, we have four of her five statements about how God has ruined her life. In verse 13, she said, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. My life is bitter because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then in verse 20, she comes back and the whole town's excited. Well, can you imagine if you see a neighbor that you hadn't seen for 20 years that finally came back and you hadn't had any contact with her? Remember, there's no Facebook. There's no email. There's no even regular mail. Nobody had seen her for 10 years. Is that Naomi? She's really aged right there. She's on the Is that really you? And what does Naomi say? Don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi means pleasant. Okay. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And the word Mara means bitter. In our day and age, it might be, you know, there's a few people named Hope. Or something like that. Don't call me Hope. Call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Why? For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That's the first one in verse 20. Second, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I had everything I wanted when I left Israel and I'm coming back with nothing. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Verse 21, second part. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? Basically, God is out to get me. He's my accuser in court. He's testified against me. He's shown in my life that he stands against me. And the Almighty, at the end of verse 21, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Do you ever feel like that? I want you to notice a few things about Naomi. First of all, she believed in God. She didn't say, I'm an atheist. If there's all this suffering, I'm an atheist. No. All five times in this chapter when she talks about her distress, the subject of the sentence is the Lord. He's the action. He's the person that acts. She believed in God, but her focus was on herself. 
and our personal circumstances. Every time, God did this to me. God did this to me. God did this to me. She couldn't see beyond her pain and suffering. And before we get too tough on Naomi, how would you do in the same situation? Basically, she couldn't see beyond her own pain and suffering. And she said, I believe in God. God has ruined my life. And I am kicked off. I am good. You ever feel like that? Now, Naomi didn't know the end of the story, okay? She did have the promise of Abraham, which was passed down. She knew about God's promise to Abraham. And she did have the testimony of Moses. But Naomi didn't even know the second chapter of the book of Ruth because it hadn't been written yet. You and I can look at this and say, oh, it's going to turn out okay. It's like when we watch that movie the second time, you know, the one where in the middle, you're, you know, it's a cliffhanger. The second time you watch it, the, the suspense is gone because you know how it's going to turn out. Naomi didn't know that. There was no Ruth chapter 2 when she said these things. There was no chapter 4 when it says that Naomi was going to end up being the great grandma of David. She didn't know that. She knew that God had promised through Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth, but she didn't know how that was going to turn out. She decided to base her outlook on life and her response to her situation on what she could see and what she could feel instead of trusting the God of Israel who had promised to bless his people. Now, not everybody back then had that response. In fact, even before Naomi, if I understand the chronology of the Old Testament, right, there was another guy. There's a book written about him, too. His name's Job. How did he respond when disaster came? Lost all of his kids. All of his assets were wiped out. He had zero in his IRA. He had no Social Security. He was totally wiped out. What does he do? It tells us in Job chapter 1, verse 20, after all this had happened, the news came in of he lost everything. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. Is it any wonder God said to Satan, have you seen anybody like Job? There's nobody like Job. In the worst of possible situations, all this happens and he falls down and he worships and he says, Naked came I from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the writer makes a point of saying after that, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now there's a philosophy out today that God doesn't do bad things. Well, Job here says, God took all these things away from me. And it says, he didn't sin by accusing God wrongly. In fact, in the second chapter, when his wife said, curse God and die, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And again, it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So it was possible, even back then, even before all of God's story was revealed throughout the scriptures, it was possible even back then for people to respond in faith to calamity and to worship and bless God in the midst of terrible, horrific situations. Are we any different than Naomi? We believe in God. But God has brought some things into our lives, even as believers, 
that are painful. And often we respond in bitterness with how he's treated us. He's ruined our happily ever after story. And why are we bitter? We won't admit it, but there's a lot of reasons we're bitter. Number one, maybe, maybe we don't think it's right what God's done. We question his justice. It's not fair. I don't deserve this. Or maybe we just don't think that what God's doing is good. We can't see how it can be good, so we question his love. We really, we're questioning the love of God for us. Because if he really loved us, we wouldn't be facing this. Or maybe we're bitter because we think there's a better way. We're questioning the wisdom of God. We say, like, dare I say it, many young teenagers with their parents, my parents don't know anything. You know, when you're a teenager, you know everything. You were that way. I was that way. My parents really had a problem. They just didn't understand. And a lot of us are like that with God. We think we know better than God. We would never say that. But why are we mad at God when he does things if we think there's a better way? It's because we don't think he is wise in what he does. Or basically, the fourth thing, and I think it's the main thing, is basically we have another agenda. You know, God may love us. God may be just. Maybe I do deserve it. Maybe it is the best thing for me, but frankly, I just want something else. I have another agenda. I'm writing my happily ever after story and God's messing up the plot. Right? And this, this has extremely negative effects on everything. It affects our relationships. It affects our decision making. It, affects, it can affect our health. It makes us miserable. Tim Keller said in one of his sermons, there is nothing that makes you more miserable than self-absorption. Want to be miserable? Focus on yourself. Focus on your circumstances. Focus on how God's treating you. Focus on how other people are treating you. But I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that this attitude, while it can be explained and while it's understandable in a sense, we understand why people do that. It's never excusable in the light of what God's done for us. This attitude dishonors God. If you're a child of God, if you have put, repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is giving you the opportunity to demonstrate both to the world and to witnesses in the heavenly realms that he in and of himself is enough for you. So what effect do you think it has when we get mad at God because things aren't working out the way we like we're losing the opportunity to be a testimony, a cosmic testimony to the goodness and sufficiency of God. Now, would Naomi have reacted differently if she had known the rest of the story? The Bible doesn't tell us. You know, if it was me and I knew the end of the book, then I would have been fine with it, right? That we can kid ourselves like that. What if she had known that Boaz would rescue her from her poverty? What if she had known the end of chapter 4? That she would end up being okay. That she'd have a grandson and Boaz then would take, her in, take Ruth and her into his home and provide for her. What if she'd known that a son would be born to carry on her husband's line? What if she'd known that she would have a great-grandson named David that would become king? What if she had known that one of David's descendants would be the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Would she have been more pleasant? Would she? Indications are, if she's anything like me, probably not. Maybe a little bit better in her head, but you and I both know what it's like. 
We get wrapped up in ourselves. But see, God was doing something bigger than the story of Naomi. Naomi's a part of a bigger story. Her story's a part of a bigger story. He was working out his plan of salvation. And when Naomi's standing there saying, the Lord sent me away full and I've come back, the Lord's brought me back empty. Standing next to her is David's grandma in the messianic line that would bring the savior of the world to you and to me. She thought she came back empty. And from all visual and human standards, she did come back empty. Not only was she coming home destitute, she had another mouth to feed who couldn't take care of herself either. But from a divine perspective, it was part of a plan that's bigger than any of us and all of us put together. Naomi was playing a small part in the story of redemption which required that she come back from Moab a widow. That's the only way that Boaz and Ruth, who were going to both figure into the Messianic line, could get into the Messianic line. So God used Naomi to bring them together. Naomi's calamity makes no sense without seeing the bigger picture. The problem for Naomi was... She didn't know the bigger picture, except just dimly. But you and I don't have that excuse. We've got the story. We know how it ends. There's an old gospel song. I don't agree with the, the, the sense of it, but I agree with the truth of it. We win, we win, hallelujah, we win. I read the back of the book and we win. Well, we don't win, he wins. And if we identify with him, we're going to be carried in his train of victory. But we read the back of the book. We know how it ends. God wins. You cannot make sense of human history until you realize it is is his story. And you cannot make sense of your own calamity without understanding it's a part of something bigger. It's a part of the eternal story of redemption which swallows everything up in itself. Your personal story will only make sense when you understand it's a part of the story. You see, you and I get tripped up a lot because often we think God is here to help me write my story. That's what God's there for. Yes, I became a Christian because I realized I had some problems in my life and I was a sinner and I need I wanted to go to heaven. So God came and took care of that and God's going to take care of my finances and he's going to make my relationships better and God's going to make my happily ever after story come true. I have all these dreams and God's going to help me with my dreams. That's not the gospel. God has something for you that's way better than your happy ever after story because it goes on way beyond your ever after. Your ever after stops when you die. His ever after never ends. And God wants to write, and God is going to write, your happy ever after story. You see, God is not there to help me write my story. God put me here, and he wrote me into his story. I get to be a character in his story. And that will never be ruined. It's going to take place. See, your spouse can ruin your story. Your kids can ruin your story. Your boss can ruin your story. Your neighbors can ruin your story. Your health can ruin your story. 
There's a whole lot of things that can ruin your story. Nothing can ruin God's story. So why not buy in? Why not accept that he's writing you into his story with a capital S? And why not embrace it? He's going to do it anyway. You don't have a say in it. You might think you're in control of your life. Live long enough, you'll know you're not. You know, I, I have a friend, Tom Ford. Some of you might know him. Missionary to Zambia, lived over in Danville. He preached years ago a sermon. I don't remember anything about the sermon, but the title. This is not the life I had planned. Your story's not going to come true. His story is. So why not buy into that one? Indy Wilson, an author, wrote this, talking about God's story. Why do we live? Because our maker opened his mouth and began to tell a story. In this story, the sun moves. In this story, every night meets a dawn and burns away in the brightest morning. In this story, winter can never hold back the spring. He is the best of all possible audiences, the only audience to see every scene, the author who became a character and heaped every shadow on himself. God entered into his own story in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He wrote himself into the story. And he gave himself at the same time the most glorious and the most painful part of the story. You see, we look at Naomi and we know we shouldn't be bitter and we know God, the New Testament tells us to rejoice in the Lord always and in everything to give thanks and all these great things that come off the tongue so easily until we're in the midst of catastrophe in our own life. Then what do we do? You and I cannot, by our own will, rise above that and somehow with positive thinking get to a place where we're going to be okay. We have to look to the only person who ever chose to be in the story. You and I were in the story and we didn't even have a choice. He's the only one who had a choice. And he chose to be in the story. In fact, he is the story. He willingly gave up everything. He left everything for you and me. He left heaven. He emptied himself of everything that he had. That perfect, eternal relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And he came as a man and prophetically he said when he came, I have come to do your will. Whatever that entails. I have come, Father, to accomplish your story. I have no story outside of you. He never had an agenda of his own. And his public ministry, before it began, remember the first thing that happened after the dove descends and this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased with John the Baptist baptizing. What's the first thing it says? Mark says, immediately the spirit drove Jesus into the desert where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of 40 days when he was starving to death, literally his body was consuming itself, Satan comes to him and says, you can do it. Turn these stones into bread. Now it wouldn't have been a temptation if he couldn't have turned the stones to bread. He could have done it, but it wasn't a part of the Father's story. So what does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And then he puts him on the pinnacle and Satan says, write your own story. Prove that God's with you. Jump off the pinnacle. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. That's not a part of the story. And the temptation continued. Starting his ministry, 
He never chose his own way. And throughout his whole life, he never did his own will. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered because there was no way to accomplish the story of redemption unless somebody, a human being, lived their whole life without ever trying to write their own lines to the story. And he did it. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, verses 10 and then 17 and 18, it was fitting that he, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, you and me, sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect, that means complete, through suffering. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was just like you and me as human beings. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He knows what it is to be tempted to write in your own story. He knows what it is, but he never did it. And because he never did it, he goes on to say, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. At the root, the temptations were not to do specific sins. At the root, throughout his life, as in our lives, day in and day out, the temptation is to take back the script and try to rewrite it ourselves instead of letting God determine what we will do, what is right, and what is wrong. And finally, when facing death in Gethsemane, what does he do? Father, not my will but yours be done. Sweating drops of blood, as it were, but he still chose the Father's will. For the joy of accomplishing the Father's plan of redemption, he endured the cross and despised the shame. And so God exalted him high above his name. Go to him in your suffering. Go to him in your calamity. He's the only one who knows how to respond the way We need to respond in order to honor God. He's been there. He knows. He'll teach us, as only He can, how to lay aside our agenda, how to embrace our disappointments, and how in the midst of suffering to rejoice that God is accomplishing His plan and He's going to bring it to pass. Now, friends, this does not mean that we don't suffer. It does not mean life doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that the difficulties of life really don't matter. and It's not really painful. And, you know, it's all in our heads. No, it hurts. We weep. And the scriptures say, in the body of Christ, we weep with those who weep. We're not pretending life is just a fairy tale that we're tripping through on our way to heaven. Life is a battle. It's painful. It hurts. But through the tears and the sorrow and the grief, and even though those tears may be streaming down our faces, and they will from time to time, within us there's a deep abiding joy. There's a confidence that God knows what what He's doing and that we're a part of His story. You know the song Amazing Grace, right? This man, John Newton, God saved him. And he wrote some letters that are really good letters. This is part of one letter he wrote to somebody. The inexhaustible theme of redeeming love is ever pressing upon our attention. 
I will tell you that, though you know it, that the Lord reigns. He who once bore our sins and carried our sorrows is seated upon the throne of glory and exercises all power in heaven and on earth. Thrones, principalities, and powers bow before him. Every event in the kingdoms of providence and grace is under his rule. His providence pervades and manages everything, and he is attentive to each single part as if it was the only subject he had in view. From the tallest archangel to the smallest ant or fly, all depend on him for their being, their preservation, and their powers. He directs the sparrows where to build their nests and to find their food. He overrules the rise and fall of nations and bends with invincible energy and unerring wisdom all events, so that while many intend something else, when all is said and done, their designs all concur and coincide in the accomplishment of his holy holy will. He restrains with a mighty hand the still more formidable efforts of the powers of darkness, and Satan with all his hosts cannot exert their malice a hair's breadth beyond the limits of his permission. Do you know that in life? Satan can't do anything to you unless God says it's okay. And God will only say it's okay if that's exactly what you need to be a part of the story. This is he who is the head and husband of his believing people. How happy are we whom it is his good pleasure to bless. How safe are we whom he has engaged to protect. How honored and privileged are we to whom he is pleased to manifest himself and whom he enables and authorizes to claim him as our friend and our portion. Having redeemed us by his blood, he sets a high value upon us. He esteems us as his treasure, his jewels, and keeps us as the apple of his eye. We shall not want, we need not fear. His eye is upon us in every situation. His ear is open to our prayers and his everlasting arms are under us for our sure support. On earth he guides our steps, controls our enemies, and directs all his dispensations for our good. While in heaven he is pleading our cause, preparing us a place, and sending down to us encouraging foretastes of the glory that shall be shortly revealed. That's the story we get to be a part of. How can we face the calamities of our lives, painful as they are? Every person of the Trinity is helping us do that. The Father. The love the Father has for us. He who did not spare his only Son, but freely gave him up for us all. Will he not also with us freely give all things? If he gave Jesus on the cross for you, what makes you think in your worst moment that he's going to withhold something else that's good for you? The Holy Spirit, what is he? He's the deposit of our inheritance, guaranteeing what is to come. And Jesus himself, who took all our pain, all our sorrow, who knows more than any of us. You think about it. All of your calamity. Of all six billion people on the face of this earth and everyone who's lived before, he took all of that suffering on himself and still chose the will of the Father overriding his own story. And he is there today to walk you through your sorrow, to comfort you in your pain. Everybody has a story. Naomi had a story. You have a story. And like he did with Naomi, God has written you into his story. 
Hopefully it says his child. If you have not repented and put your faith in Christ, that's the place to start. You will be a part of the story, but you will be an expression of his wrath and his justice against sin. Unless you choose to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ who took the wrath of God for you upon himself. And if you do that, then he has written you into his story as one of his children. Now you have to decide how you're going to respond when God rewrites your story so it's going to fit into his. Naomi didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't even know chapter 2 of the book of Ruth. But God was using her to bring the Messiah to her people. But we don't even have that excuse. We know what God's up to. We know what the plan is. God has revealed the mystery of Christ throughout the New Testament. And we have the entire testimony of Scripture to help us. Elizabeth Elliot said this, God is God, and since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere else, nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. Don't ask God to tell you why. If he told you, you wouldn't understand anyway. But we have enough in the scripture to know that the day is coming when the Lord returns and every eye sees him and every knee bows and every tongue confesses him as Lord of all and he wipes away every every tear from our eyes that everything, every pain will become untrue. All suffering will become untrue. And when we look at him and I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know we're going to look at him and say, you were right. I needed everything you gave me. And you turned it into something of beauty. So what will it be, folks? Naomi or Mara? May God give us the grace to respond pleasantly to the pain of life. Because we know that he's writing out his story. And it's a beauty. Let's pray. Lord, take your word. Work deep in our hearts. May we know that you are trustworthy. May we worship and be in awe of the wonder of your story. And Lord, may we repent of our bitterness and our bad attitude, which is so inconsistent with who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Give us the grace and the faith to honor you with joy, even as tears run down our face. Because we know the day is coming when you will make all things new. You will put everything right. And we will tell you, you were right all along. In Jesus' name.